Holy Spirit, we are entirely dependent upon you to stretch our intellects and our emotions and our spirits that we might perceive God as he is. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm speaking today about the sacred name of God as revealed in Exodus chapter 3. And as you may know, if, if you have any familiarity with the Bible, um, names in the ancient world and in the sacred text are almost always linked to a person's character or nature. Names have great significance in Scripture and often form, in a prophetic way, a person's whole life. A name has a way of shaping a person. It's no surprise that Abraham was named what he was named because it means father of many. Moses um, likely means deliverer. Jesus means salvation. The names have great uh, meaning. Contrast this with the practice uh, in the United States during the 1990s, that great generation that was almost as great as the 1980s. Uh, Alas, we can't go back in time. Musically, I wish we could. But notice the most popular names in the 1990s. I will now read them unto you. Brandon, Dylan, and Shannon. Why were these the most popular names? Because of their profound meaning? No, it's because these names were represented in the cast of Beverly Hills 90210, a a great and life-changing sitcom. That was sarcasm. Uh, but, uh, but if any of you have those names, I'm sure your parents had different reasons for naming you those things. Uh, but it just goes to show that different cultures handle the significance of names differently. God's name, though, God's name reveals oceanic depths of meaning. And we're only going to dive into the, to the shallow part of that tonight. Um, but I, I simply want to um, say that God's name that he gives to us reveals that God in his own person is lofty with a fixation on the lowly. That's what I'm saying tonight. God who is lofty has a fixation related to the lowly. And if you understand uh, that, you'll get the core meaning of what I am is all about. So the um, narrative location is important. Many of you know the story, but just as a brief recap, Uh, Moses had uh, Jewish uh, uh, parents who were also enslaved by the political structures of Egypt. Uh, The pharaoh was was growing uh, nervous that the Jewish slave population could rise up in revolt and could potentially take over the kingdom. So to thin out the slave population, he decided rather wickedly to massacre all of the male children. Uh, Moses' parents didn't want that fate for their son, so they put him in a basket and sent him down the, the, the Nile and hoped for the best. The baby was picked up by the daughter of Pharaoh and raised in the royal household of Pharaoh. We don't know if uh, Moses understood from an early age if he was Jewish or not, but at some point in his life he discovers his identity and, um, and sees an abusive taskmaster, an Egyptian taskmaster, beating uh, a Hebrew slave, and he goes over and he kills the taskmaster. Maybe, in essence, taking the exodus um, uh, on his own shoulders, that he's going to be the revolutionary figure that gets this thing going. Almost like Abraham, worried that uh, his wife couldn't conceive and, um, and fulfill the ancient promise that God made. And so, 
Abraham takes, uh, takes another uh, surrogate. The same thing may be happening there with Moses. We don't know. Anyway, uh, he is discovered, and he flees into another country and decides to leave, his, uh, um, to leave his lofty position and become a shepherd in the middle of the desert. And he is in his uh, later years of life. He is tending sheep, and he has um, an encounter that he wasn't expecting on Mount Sinai, which will come in later uh, um, into the Moses story. So I want to look at two key passages within that rather lengthy um, um, portion of Exodus 3, two key passages that can help us to see God's lofty nature and his lowly concern. So I'd invite you to take your bulletin and uh, open it up to the passage and look with me at verse 13, beginning in verse 13. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, they, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Uh, The name of God as presented here uh, is enigmatic, somewhat mysterious, uh, because we're not not entirely sure how to translate it and even how to pronounce it. We know that the Hebrew is is the Y-H-W-H. It's known as the Tetragrammaton. Um, and we're not sure how to pronounce it because the Hebrew um, language, at least in its original form, had no vowels. It, it also is constructed, that is, the name of God is constructed in imperfect verbs that could have a present tense or a future tense, meaning God's name could be translated, I am who I am, I will be who I will be, I am who I will be, or I will be who I am. We're not entirely sure. Uh, But the rabbis believed that this name was so holy, so powerful, and so enigmatic that they wouldn't even say the word. They replaced it in their uh, religious language with the word Adonai, or Lord, instead of going in, delving into the depths, the oceanic depths of that name. But I want to consider from this text tonight what the divine name tells us about the character of God. Uh, because it does tell us things that are rich and beautiful and, um, and that can capture our imaginations. The first thing that it tells us is that God is, by God's own nature, self-revelatory. God is self-revelatory. Now, what on earth does that mean? Note that it is not Moses who names God. God names God. God gives his name uh, to Moses, reveals it to him. This is a a pretty significant insight, and one that was certainly counter-religious in Moses' own context, the Egyptian context, where the Egyptian priests were the ones who named their deities. The belief was, if you could discover and then name a god, you could 
compel, at least in some small way, that God to act on your behalf, to do you favors. In other words, if you knew the name of a God and could use the name of that God, it gave you a certain amount of divine authority and clout. Here we see something different from, from a, an, an inspired Jewish insight. There is no way, from that perspective, no way to understand God apart from God. We call this, in theological language, special revelation. Special revelation. Uh, it means that God, in God's truest essence, cannot be completely comprehended with our mental or emotional faculties. Even with our, uh, with our um, psychologizing or our um, philosophizing, we can't grapple with the central essence of God's own person. That needs to be revealed to us. And this is why it is God who speaks to Moses and gives Moses a name, his own name. So God is, by God's own nature, self-revelatory. What's more, though, from this passage, God is self-referential. Notice, in God's very own name, who does he compare himself to? God compares himself to himself. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. Uh, In essence, God is saying something of astounding quality. It shows, friends, the inspiration of the Scripture, because it's so, it runs so counter-cultural and counter-religious to everything else that was on the market at the time. God is saying, in essence, I cannot give you a sufficient image or metaphor to tell you what I'm like, because I'm the only one who is like me. Nothing else and no description can capture the totality of my being or essence. Now, again, I remind you of the surroundings. Uh, Egypt had an elaborate, uh, one could argue beautiful, highly developed religion with a hierarchy of deities, each having their own sphere of influence and power. The Egyptian clergy would tell you, you can only understand the god Ra by considering the sun. If you want to know what Ra is like, look at his domain, the sun. If you want to know what Tefnut is like, look at the rain and the effects of the rain. If you want to know what the god Hopi is like, go to the Nile. Because these things, in a sense, reflect the divine qualities of the god behind them. Now, this isn't just some ancient superstition or a way old people without the internet used to think. it's, we do this today. Just, it's just the same. Remember, secularism does not exist. Just for, it does, it's, just, it's a mirage. It's a maya. It's an illusion. It isn't real. Uh, everybody worships something. Got to serve somebody. Did Bob Dylan teach us nothing? Uh, we know this implicitly. And we know this. There's only bad religion and religion that makes you whole. But there is no irreligion. That's a, it's a non-starter. Um, but we do this today. We always associate the divine uh, with, with particular things. We think God is most clearly seen, or the energy of the universe is most clearly seen in nature, or divinity is most clearly seen or reflected in the patterns of the stars, which, which, can, uh, make, uh, which can make us have a clearer vision of our future. 
Um, today, what we do is we divinize sexuality. Clearly, the, exp- uh, the expression of sexuality is, where, is the locus of divinity. That's really what most people seem to be believing or, um, or uh, verging into these days. Um, so we do the same kind of thing. We believe that if you were to discover God's essence, God is most clearly seen in one of these spheres. But I am, the great I am of Exodus 3, uh, is, um, is here communicating uh, to us that he can only compare himself to himself, that seasons and tides and romance and all of the good things in life, good as they are, are inadequate in expressing the totality of God's own person. The best we can do in those spheres is to see a glimpse of God, but not the totality of his person. This is why in Hebrews 6, the passage, um, this uh, wonderful passage tells us that when God made a promise to Abraham, this is Hebrews 6, he swore by his own self, since he had no one greater by whom to swear. Uh, So God is um, self-revelatory. God is self-referential in his revelation. And lastly, God is self-described as omnitemporal. Omnitemporal meaning um, that he stretches from past to present to future. Uh, he is not like the sun which rises and falls. He is, uh, um, he is not like nature which is created and then decays. Uh, he is something that is um, entirely unique and outside, external to the common um, patterns in nature and in ancient religion where you have dying and rising gods. Something different is happening here. And we know he's omnipre- uh, omnitemporal because of, uh, of what this text mentions. It mentions the past. On two occasions, he talks about um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the parentage of Moses and God's uh, implicit covenant with them Um, that is finding a a greater fulfillment in the ministry of Moses. Um, We know God is in the present because he's addressing Moses through this great theophany of the burning bush, and we know God will be in the future because it says, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. It's a God who spans all eternity. Now, this may sound like a no-brainer to us. Maybe it should, but it wasn't for them. This was a new idea in the history of the world. Special revelation, not something common, but something remarkable. So the name I am tells us something about God's lofty character. God is not just a higher power. We have many of those in life, by the way. Many higher powers. If you have a boss, you have a higher power. He may not be a great higher power, but you have a higher power. If you drive four miles over the speed limit, just four, four miles over the speed limit in Grove City, you will discover a higher power with flashing lights. It will pull you over and give you a fine that is just incalculable. Don't get me started. Um, You understand. I mean, some of you are, you know, I won't ask for a show of hands. Um, But a lot of higher powers out there. The scripture isn't here talking about a higher power, but the highest power uh, above whom there is no might. There is no glory. There is no transcendence. Only one entails all of those things. He is infinite. Uh, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And so this is not some like Feuerbachian experiment. Remember, Feuerbach said that God is nothing but the projection of human emotions and human um, ideas onto the sky. That's all God is. 
And so maturity means leaving that God behind. I agree with him. Maturity would be leaving that God behind because God isn't like you, only bigger. What would that be like, by the way? Um, God isn't like that. God isn't just you, but bigger. Uh, God is something wholly other, completely different, and is breaking into history, and in his very name, shows us that lofty difference. And so, no intuition is keen enough to perceive him, no metaphor is sufficient enough to express him, and no time frame is able to contain him. I was a uh, uh, I worked in a youth ministry in Philadelphia, and uh, I, I was not good at it. <laughs> I wasn't. I was really bad at it. They put me with 26th graders who were, who were just, you know, they were just binging on sugar and Pepsi. And then they gave, the, the, the ministry gave them to me, which was just a, it was like torture. And so I'm dealing with all these very loud, rambunctious kids who, who aren't listening to my very thoughtful theological treatises. They don't care what I have to say. They're just very interested in sugar and getting more sugar. And there was one little maniac who was worse than all the other maniacs. And I, man, he drove me crazy, absolutely crazy. And the only reason I developed any compassion toward him at all is because I met his father, who was a monster. He was a monster. His father was cruel with his words, um, uh, severe in his punishments, and at the same time, very devout. Very devout. And he loved to argue theology. Loved to argue theology. If you find somebody in life, by the way, who loves to argue more than they love to love, watch out. Watch out. You will be in their sights at some point. Guarantee it. Um, just saying. This father was, was monstrous to his son. And I tried to, in some way, bring them together it didn't work very well. But I, at one point, took the, the young man out and I asked him a question. I said, is there ever a time uh, when you can deal with your father in peace? Ever. And he said, no. And he paused. And he said, well, yeah, I guess there is. When he's on his knees at church, then I can deal with him. It's the only point in the week where he doesn't think of himself as the master of the universe. But when he's down on his knees in front of God, then I can deal with him. And that is, in some ways, the vision. This is why we enter worship the way we do, with reverence. Uh, because we're, at, we're having an encounter with somebody who is wholly other, uh, and, and the right posture before such a reality is honor and reverence, that we, um, in some way, uh, remove our shoes because we're on holy ground now. Uh, so God reveals his own um, person as a lofty person, that the thing, the reality that energizes the universe, the power and potency behind all things, the great personality, um, is greater and more masterful, and more creative, and more loving than we can ever possibly fathom. So we have a lofty God, but we have a lofty God who has a fixation on the lowly. Verse 7, um, please read uh, along with me. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. 
I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a good land, a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, here is where the Greek philosophers get off our religion bus. They leave. I find that the Greeks like to think of God as um, in abstractions. God is the great infinite. He is the primary cause. He is the unmoved mover. Or to quote uh, J.A.T. Robinson and Paul Tillich, God is the ground of being. I mean, it all sounds terrific. But, you, but God could be all of those things and not care about you at all. Have absolutely no interest in your life, your problems, your traumas. But notice here the verbs associated and attributed to the God who communicates his very name uh, in verbal form. This God, first of all, speaks. He's revealing something about himself. He's addressing somebody. He sees affliction. He hears crying. He knows of others' suffering. And then he comes down, condescends, in order to deliver. The God who is portrayed here is one who is um, intertwined with the human story and not distinct from it uh, in, in, in terms of his activity. And who does he come to save? Not royalty, not clergy, uh, not the aristocracy, but slaves. Slaves. A powerless horde with no dignity, no control, who reek with sweat and whose clothes are stained with tears, and who have lost most of their children. That's his target audience. He is coming down because he's heard their crying. Um... See, God's loftiness is expressed not in remoteness from the world. His loftiness is expressed by acting within the world. That's where we see the grandeur of God, not apart from things, but in the midst of the chaos. Um, I am, in other words, is not an unaffected abstraction or a sky dweller. He is the sovereign meddler, the one who raises up vigilante shepherds to set a group of people free. Or to quote Carl Sagan, I know, to quote Carl Sagan, for lowly creatures such as we, the vastness is bearable only through love. The only way I can possibly be warmed by, instead of afraid of, uh, an infinite reality and personality is to know that that infinite reality and personality sees me and cares about me and knows about me and listens to me and sees my tears. All of a sudden, then, the vastness is bearable because of love. Now, I'm going to use a human illustration of this lowly concern of the great I am, though, as I said, all illustrations will fail to capture God and God's totality. But nevertheless, we need them uh, this is a true story about a man named uh, Larry Mullaney. He was a student at Steubenville Universities in the late 1960s. Uh, he was regarded as socially awkward and profoundly unattractive. Uh, he was extremely short, terribly obese, with a bad case of acne, 
a terrible lisp, and greasy hair. He wore the uniform of the day, a t-shirt that hadn't been washed since the Spanish-American War, uh, torn jeans, no shoes. Larry uh, once remarked to one of his professors that when he looked in the mirror each morning, it was very hard for him not to spit at the image that he saw looking back at him. Uh, He was the epitome of self-loathing. When his junior year, um, he had to meet with the college chaplain because at Steubenville you had to go to chapel. And he said to the chaplain, I guess you haven't seen me much in chapel this year. That's because I'm an agnostic. And the chaplain retorted, rather tongue-in-cheek, Wow! Good for you, Larry. You're being consistent. But I'll tell you what, if you ever become a full-fledged atheist, I'll take you out for a drink in order to celebrate your full conversion. (laughs) He didn't quite know how to take that. But a bridge of sorts was built. Well, Christmas came along for Larry Mullaney, and he found himself back with his parents in Providence, Rhode Island. And Larry regarded his father as a remote, cold, lace-curtain Irishman. I now know what that phrase means. A lace-curtain Irishman, even on the hottest day in summer, will come to the dinner table uh, wearing a black suit, a starched white shirt, and a necktie that goes all the way up with the knot tied very tightly. Uh, He'll always um, uh, have his hair cut well and speak in slow, measured tones. By contrast, Larry comes to the table smelling like a billy goat, ready for a debate. Well, he and his father have the usual numbers of quarrels and reconciliations. And then Larry tells his father that he's got to get back to school the next day, and his father agrees to ride the bus and accompany his son. Well, the next morning, um, they're on that bus, father and son, spending the time in silence. They had to make a brief stop and get on another bus. And when they made that brief stop, across the street were six men who stood under an awning who worked at the same textile factory as Larry's father. And they began to make degrading remarks uh, at Larry. They said, look at that fat pig. Can you believe that fat pig? You know, all these hippies are the same. Shiftless, unpatriotic, immoral, dirty. You know, if that kid were mine, he'd be out the door so fast he wouldn't know if he was on foot or on horseback. Not me, said another man. If that pig were mine, I'd bury him in the basement. I'd be so ashamed. And Larry said that in that moment, for the first time in his whole life, his father cupped his head in his hands and turned his face away from those men. And he looked straight into his son's eyes. And he kissed him. And he held him close. And he said, Larry... If your mother and I live to be 300 years old, it won't be enough time to thank God for the gift that he's given us in you. I am so proud to have you as my son. A week later, Larry goes to see the chaplain and says, 
Can you tell me about this man, Jesus? Four years later, Larry, totally ambushed by Christ, was ordained a priest in the Diocese of Milwaukee. Why? Because his father came down. He came down out of a place of remoteness and aloofness, out of a place of chill, a chilly disposition. And he came down to the suffering of his son, and he engaged with him in that place of torment, in that place of degradation and pain. Larry's father resembled in a small way the disposition of God who comes down to people when they are at their lowest place. Now, we know as Christians that the story I am of I am does not conclude in Exodus 3. I am gets closer and closer and closer until he finally adopts a human form. Adopts a human form as the son of Abraham, the son of Moses, the son of David. And then he starts to speak. And he says things that have an ancient corollary. To those with famished, starving souls, he says, I am the bread of life. And to those who crave care more than criticism, he says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And to those who fear the rattling of the bones of the grim reaper, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The great I am who addresses Moses will later speak through the Judean lips of Jesus Christ and offer not only a deliverance, but a wider, better, deeper deliverance. See, I am is a lofty God, a lofty God beyond our finite awareness, our mental musings, and often our ego-driven philosophizing. But I am is also the God of the lowly. God is not so lofty and remote that he is blind, deaf, and dumb to the pangs of our lives, he sees, he knows, he hears, and he has come down. He has come down in Jesus Christ, unafraid of us, unafraid of our self-destructive tendencies, and he has brought us through, not the waters of the Red Sea, but through the Calvary blood of Jesus Christ, from which we emerge entirely unstained and unstainable. This is the gospel message this is the grace of God, and may this truth of the great I am cause you, cause me to wonder, to worship, and to, to delight in the God that is revealed to Moses and more fully revealed in Jesus Christ. Amen.